you recall, uh, this is um, part two of, of this message from chapter 8 and 9 that we're simply considering the effects of God's Word uh, on His people. And so I'm giving you six of those, and last week we got through a whopping one, and uh, we'll do more than that today. But uh, sort of a, an introduction to the subject, I gave you uh, three things that we need um, as we relate to God's Word as His people. And I'll just sort of refresh your memory on that since it's been a couple of Sundays. Um, the first thing that we need as we relate to God's Word is, is we need a desire for His Word. And as we pray, we should seek the Lord and, and, and ask Him to give us a, a desire, to give us a hunger uh, for His Word. And by His Word, just to be clear, I'm talking about the Bible, uh, this written Word that we've been given uh, from the Lord. And may we desire to be sanctified, to be cleansed by the washing of the water by the Word, as the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians. And also may this Word be the unifying force in our church. We, we can talk about love for one another and we can talk about unity, but it has to be grounded on something. It has to have a foundation. And uh, the foundation of unity in the church can't be, well, we just don't want to fight, right? That won't last, because eventually you'll find something worth fighting over, um, and you'll go for it. But if our, our foundation is the Word of God, we can agree on this one thing, that God has spoken, and what He has said is what we will do. Uh, that's a foundation that you can build on. That's a foundation you can build your life on, your family, and certainly your church. Um, a second need is we, all, we need to all hear God's Word. It's not just for a certain group of people or for the people that gather in church on Sunday, uh, but it's for people of all ages, all walks of life, men, women, uh, old people, young people, and everybody in between. And we have a responsibility not just to make sure His Word is proclaimed here, which we certainly do have that, but we have a responsibility also to carry this Word uh, into our community and into our world. And then the third need that we considered was this need to give time and attention to God's Word. And what I mean by time and attention is meditation without distraction. You need and I need time alone with God in His Word every single day. God has given us His Word. He has spoken. We don't have to wonder what He has to say about Himself. He has made Himself known. And He's given us a book. We need to take time, unhindered, unhurried time with God's Word Every day, And so then, as we really launched into this, we're talking about six effects of God's Word on His people. And the first one we considered was what happened there in verse 6 of chapter 8 uh, when they heard the Word of God. It says also uh, here in verse 6, it says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And this here, this isn't just being fascinated with the Word of God. It isn't just being intrigued by what they've read or, or uh, what they've just heard. But this is true worship. Unfortunately, today, we're, we're often not even interested or intrigued uh, by the Word of God. It's become sort of a familiar thing to us uh, to read our Bibles or to know that we have it. And we become indifferent. But when God opens our ears to really hear His Word, when He opens our eyes to see what He has to say, when He lets us see Him for who He is, we will be moved to worship. Because it's the Word of God who shows us who God is and who we are worshiping. So that's sort of a recap of where we've been so far. Today I'll give you three more um, effects of God's Word 
on his people. So uh, the first one today, but number two in the list, I'm sorry that's confusing for you note takers, okay, uh, is teaching. Teaching. Look there at verse 7. So Ezra's come out, he's, he's read the word of God to the people, he stood on this platform, they stood out here for hours to hear the word of God. And so now here's what happens. Verse 7 says also, uh, this long list of names which I can totally pronounce, they're all Levites. We'll just summarize that way. The Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book of the, in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So after Ezra now has stood before the whole of the congregation and he's read the word of God, they've all heard it. Now the Levites, those who are equipped to understand and teach the word, are gathering with the people, it looks like in smaller settings, throughout the crowd to teach and make sure they understand what they've heard. Here's what they did. They read distinctly from the book. That is, they read it clearly. The paragraph by paragraph, uh, some uh, scholars even think that means they were translating because some had lost that native Hebrew language in their time in exile. And so they're translating, they're uh, paraphrasing and helping to understand so that people understand the word of God. And so the, the simple application is this, read God's word. That sounds simple, but a lot of people just look over that. Even in preaching and teaching, when you gather in a church on Sunday, so many churches will gather today and they might open the Bible and they might have a verse and then kind of launch off into whatever they want to talk about. But the Word of God is where the power is. The Word of God is where truth lies. And so we have to take the time to read the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, he said, give yourself to the reading of the Scriptures publicly. You don't, I hope you didn't just come here to hear me today. We came here to hear from God, and God has spoken in His Word. So read the Word. It's the Word itself that has power. But let me give you just a practical piece of advice here. Read it in digestible chunks. Okay? I know that some people can get ambitious and say, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year, and if you can do that and it be worthwhile, then do it. Great. That's fantastic. Read three or four chapters a day. Keep up with it for 365 days, and you can do it. I hope you can at some point. But I would rather take one chapter or a couple of paragraphs or a handful of verses and really chew on those verses and meditate and get the sense and understand what God has said than to read three, four, five chapters in a day and not remember a thing. Does that make sense? We, we would much rather take a smaller portion and meditate on it and let God speak to us through it than to just blow through it for the sake of checking off the list. So take it in digestible chunks, but also take it in an understandable translation. These guys here, they probably were doing some translating as they went. And, and listen, there's, there's enough out there now. Nobody has an excuse for having a translation of the Bible that they don't understand. Here I'm preaching this morning from the New King James. It's a good in-between. There's some folks here that grew up on the Old King James like I did, and that thing's been around for 400 years, and I praise God for it. It's a beautiful translation, and I think there's value in it. Absolutely. But I do understand that not everybody speaks that way anymore. And so if you are new to the Bible, or if you haven't ever studied the Bible before, pick something up that's a little bit newer, that's, you know, sound, and study it and read it. Do it in an understandable way. Take a chunk. Take a chapter a day. Our discipleship groups, if you get in one of those, we get together and we read five chapters a week. We read one chapter a day, five days a week, and then we get together on Sunday, we talk about it, make sure everybody understands what we're reading, and, and talk about the things that the Lord taught us through that. And then he says that they gave the sense. 
So they didn't just they read the word, but then they took the next step and they gave the sense of it. That is to say, they helped the people understand what it means. It is important to read the Word of God. It is the Word of God that has power. But the church needs people who are qualified and equipped and have the gifting to explain it. To teach it. To help those who maybe are just a step or two behind them. Everybody has this responsibility to look at where they are and the things that God is teaching them. And to look and see who else can we help pass this along to. Now, I don't know if this has occurred to you yet or not, but it is interesting to think of teaching as an effect of God's Word. How, can, how is teaching an effect of God's Word? And I think the simple answer is this. Teaching breeds teaching. You see, if you hear God's Word taught well, you're going to want to seek out more good teaching. Once you've heard it explained and you've heard it uh, given in a clear way, you can't really go back to anything else from that point. I hope that some of you have experienced that. That you've matured and progressed in, in, in your learning and your teaching and hopefully your preacher's doing an okay job of making it clear. And if so, you can't go back to a point of not understanding. You hear it, you learn, and you want to learn more. But not only that, when you hear God's Word taught well, there should be a desire that comes in you to teach it to somebody else. Now, for some of you, that may mean ministry. You, you need to go to seminary and become a pastor or a teacher. Or maybe others of you need to step into a Sunday school class or a discipleship group and teach. But for most of us, that just happens in casual conversations. That as we learn from God's Word, as we're being taught God's Word, God does something in us that makes us want to pass it along. And as we're uh, just having a conversation over lunch or, or even at work or whatever, we're talking about the things that God is teaching us. And in so doing, we're teaching other people by just giving what God has given. Now, I will give, say this, teach with caution. James uh, wrote this in the New Testament. He said, James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Now he's talking about those who get up in a setting behind a podium or a pulpit and have a, something prepared to teach a congregation or a group of people. Why does he say that? Let not many of you become teachers. He said, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You see, it is that we're all going to stand before God one day at the judgment. But if you are one who stands to teach or to preach the word of God, if you stand up and you say, this is what God says, and then you proceed to say something, you're going to give a, get a stricter judgment on judgment day. Because you're speaking for God, or at least claiming to be. And so I encourage you, if God has gifted you or if God has called you, to do that in some way, to some, in some capacity to teach His Word, to do it. But do it with caution and do it seriously, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment when you stand before God. The rewards are great, but the judgment is strict as well. So you better get it right. Everybody has a responsibility to teach, to at least some degree. Not everybody needs to get up in a pulpit or take over a Sunday school class. But we all have received the command from Jesus before he left this world. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what was the next thing he said? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's a blanket command that applies to every Christian. 
It is your responsibility to go into this world and make disciples. Tell people the good news about Jesus. When they have believed, we will baptize them and we will begin teaching them. And you have that responsibility placed on you as a child of God. So there's no escaping that. And the command to teach includes teaching others how to teach. Remember what Paul told Timothy, he said, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, he says, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's four generations of teaching there. Paul says, I've taught you, Timothy, now you entrust it to other faithful men who will also be able to teach others. So we're to teach and to pass God's word on to others in such a way that they can turn around and communicate it to someone else as well. And so I'll simply ask you a couple of questions here. Are you putting yourself in the kind of position where you can be taught? Are you receiving a regular diet of Bible teaching? That starts most basically and fundamentally with just coming to church consistently. Commit to being here faithfully for our Sunday worship and hearing the Word of God preached and taught. Then we can take it further. You can get a Sunday school class or a discipleship group and meet with others who can hold you accountable to your, your weekly walk with the Lord. Are you spending time daily with the Lord and His Word? Are you putting yourself in the kind of position where you can receive good, sound, biblical teaching? Has the Word of God affected you in such a way that you desire to pass it along? To someone else, whether that is preparing for ministry or starting a new class or a Sunday, a Sunday school class or discipleship group, or maybe that's just a casual conversation. Has God's word affected you in such a way that you want to tell it to someone else? If not, friends, you need to spend some time on your knees in prayer and ask God to give you eyes to see what he said in his word. So one of the effects of God's word on his people is teaching good, solid Bible teaching. The next one is joy. Joy. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Why did they hear... Ezra stand up and read the Bible to them and they wept. For most of these people, you think they've been in, they were in exile for 70 years and then they came back and they've been in, back in Jerusalem for 100 years or so. Since then, for some of these people, this was the first time in their life they had ever heard the words of God. They didn't have the Bible app on their phones. They didn't have 17 copies of the Bible laying around their house. They didn't have churches on every corner that they could walk into and hear the Word. There are people from all ages and, and all different walks of life here among God's people who have gathered back in Jerusalem to do His will. And they've heard, just heard Ezra read the Word of God and it has occurred to them they have never heard God's words before. Can you imagine that? Having never 
heard the word of God. Now listen, most of us are familiar enough with the idea of reading the Bible or listening to a sermon that we aren't moved by the thought that when we hear someone read from this book that we have just heard God speak. I'm not calling the Bible the word of God just because it's the cool Christian thing to say. Or it's the thing we've always called it. When I say that we're going to read from the Word of God, I really mean this is God's words. Every one of them. Friends, when you pick up your Bible for your daily time with the Lord, and I hope you're you're doing that, take just a second tomorrow morning before you read and just say to yourself, this right here in my hand is the Word of God. And that ought to blow your mind that God has given us his word. So Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, they they told them not to weep. Verse 10 says, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Why did they rejoice? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. They had heard the words of God and they understood it. And it brought them joy. They threw a party. This sounds like Christmas, right? Eat, drink, and send gifts. I mean, they're, they're celebrating like it's New Year's because they've heard God speak. Oh, would God move us in such a way that we rejoice knowing that when we have heard from this book, we have heard God speak. Yes, the, the Word of God sometimes bring us, brings us to tears. Sometimes it, it causes us to grieve over our own sin or gives us a, a burden from the world. But ultimately, the Word of God should bring us joy. It, it should bring us joy because God hasn't left us in the dark about who He is. He hasn't left us in the dark about what we should do. He's given us His, His Word. He's told us how we should live. He's revealed Himself generally through creation, right? I mean, if you got eyeballs, you can see there's a God. If you don't have eyeballs, you can feel around and you know there's stuff there. There's a creation, therefore there must be a creator. This building is here, therefore there must have been at some point a builder. This world exists and it gives testimony that God is real and that He is He is above all things and He's all powerful. That's not really enough to teach us who He is. God's revealed Himself generally through creation. But if that's all we had, we'd say, I wonder who He is. You know, I wonder what He expects from me. And we wouldn't know. But God has chosen to reveal Himself and His ways to us in a special and specific way through His Word. The very fact that God our Creator has revealed Himself to us ought to bring us joy. We're not in the dark. We don't have to wonder. He's told us who He is. But more than that, those of us who have been born again have received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells those who have put their trust in Jesus. 
Right? Praise God. And that Holy Spirit who indwells us is at work in us producing fruit. The Bible tells us that. And what's the second thing on that list of fruit in Galatians 5? Joy. The first one was love and the second one is joy. How many of you are Christians? You don't have to raise your hand, that's okay. <laughs> I hope you are. If you have been born again, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And He is determined to produce spiritual fruit in you. And one of the fruits that He is determined, listen, He is in you and He's determined to produce this in you is joy. Do you have joy? If you're a Christian and you don't, then you're not working alongside the Spirit of God that's in you because He wants to produce joy. How does He produce that joy? Through His Word. These people rejoiced because they understood the words that were declared to them. The Apostle Paul described his, his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 6. And he came to this one part and he, he described it as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now that's a, a statement. His ministry, as far as he could describe it, was this. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How does that happen? How do you go through the things that Paul went through? All the beatings, the shipwrecks, eventually decapitation by the government, all the nights he spent in prison, the times he was hungry, all the times that all his followers deserted him and no one came to his defense, he, he was sorrowful, surely. He experienced grief, but how could he say that he, he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing? How could he give the command to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say, rejoice. How do you give that command while you're sitting in a damp, rat-infested prison cell? Because that's where he was when he wrote it. Guys, I'm in prison, but I'm going to give you the command. Rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. Okay? And again, I say, rejoice. How do you do that? Because of God's Holy Spirit working in us through His Word. That's how. How can we get there? How can we really live that way? God produces that joy in us by the Holy Spirit that's within us through the Word. Friends, get in the Word. Study it. Meditate on it. Pray through it. And you will find, just like they told the Israelites here in Nehemiah chapter 8, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Some of y'all got a lot of junk going on in your life. I know. You've got plenty of reason to be upset and sad, to be down in the dumps. But if you're a Christian, you have God's Holy Spirit. And if you will get in His Word and ask Him to produce the joy that He already wants to produce in you, guess what? He will you will find that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Your resolve is not strong enough. Your will to press on is not strong enough. It will not get you there. Your determination won't work. 
If you want strength, you will find it in the joy of the Lord. Not the joy of everything out in the world, not the joy of your distractions and pleasures, but the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And that's the truth. All right, one more for today. Service. The effects of God's word on his people. We've got worship, teaching, joy, and now service. Look there at verse 10. He said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Verse 12, he says, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. The word of God had gotten hold of them in such a way and they experienced joy in the Lord in such a way that they not only celebrated themselves, but they made sure that those who were without had something to celebrate as well. They served the people around them. Friends, when the word of God gets a hold of you and you begin to experience the joy of the Lord in a real way, you will be moved with compassion for others to serve them. In verse 10, the Levites told the people to give out portions who didn't have any food prepared. Verse 12 says they went on their way, and while they were celebrating, they did just that. And this is the same kind of thing we see happening in the book of Acts, in the early days of the church. I mean, these people had such a love for one another. They were feasting on the, the, the word of God in such a way and experiencing the joy of the Lord, even against persecutions, in such a way that they met every need that their Christian brother and sister had. Some went so far as to selling their, their, their land and their homes and taking that money and, and giving it to those who were in need. And I don't know what way it is that you need to serve, but friends, let me tell you, if you are enjoying and loving and, and fellowshipping with God as you ought, it will overflow into your life of service. We do this because Jesus did it for us. You remember Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, Therefore, we're all, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, looking unto whom? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the what? The joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I don't know what you picture when you think of Jesus. Probably the typical, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed painting that, you know, everybody has in somebody's great-grandma's home, right? But when you think of Jesus, whatever else you think of, I want you to know this. He was a man who experienced joy. Yes, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knew why he came and that it was to suffer and die. But he enjoyed such fellowship with the Father that he was indeed a man of joy. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that this very word of God in the flesh, Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him. You think the cross was a happy thing? No. Being mocked and beaten, that's not good. Nobody wants that. But because he knew what was beyond it, he knew that he was doing the will of God because of the joy that was set before him on the other side. He chose to serve the will of his Father and the need of his people by laying down his life for sinners. 
That's what he did for you. Let me just say this here, just camp out for a second. The simple message of the gospel is this, that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. Now, yes, that implies that you're a sinner. Hopefully you already know you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. You've rebelled against him. You've gone your own way. You live for yourself. And because of that, because of our rebellion, and because God is good and just, he must punish sin. And that's why there's judgment in hell. But God is also loving and kind. And he wants to forgive sinners, but he can't just overlook their sins. The sin has to be paid for. So Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world in the flesh and lived a sinless life in your behalf. Joel and Kelby and I went and played uh, mini golf the other day. And some of us are better than others. We'll just say that. I won't name names. But let's just say we, we kept score. We didn't. It just it wasn't worth it. We didn't keep score. But, we, you know, when we got done, say we did, you know, if one of us shot an 18, right, that's a perfect score. That's a hole in one on every hole. And the other one had a, I don't know, 133 or something. Um, and when we got done, we said, you know what, you didn't do too great, but I did perfect. Trade scorecards with me. And now this person who, who did horrible through the whole game, now has a scorecard that says, hey, I got an 18. That's a perfect score. That's a pretty poor illustration of what Jesus did for us. You see, we're sinners. We deserve God's wrath, his punishment. We deserve judgment. But then Jesus comes along and he never sins. He doesn't deserve any judgment. He doesn't deserve any wrath. He doesn't deserve anything like that. He, he's perfect. But then he chooses on behalf of sinners, to die anyway. To let them nail Him to a cross and in the moment of His death, the, that the God the Father in heaven would pour out all of His judgment and all of His wrath for all sinners who would ever believe in Him onto His own Son. And Jesus in that moment received your punishment and died. He took your terrible scorecard on Himself and said, punish me. And he was buried, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, proving that he had the power to forgive sins and to grant new life for everyone who believes in him. Now listen, if you will turn away from your own sin, your own efforts to work your way back to God or to fix yourself, and you put your trust in Jesus alone, you say, Jesus, what you did for me on the cross is enough. My trust is in you. He doesn't just say, okay, I count your sins on Jesus. He does do that, but he doesn't just do that. He says, you know what? Jesus has perfect righteousness, and now that's yours. And now in my sight, God says, in my sight from now on, when I look at you, I see the righteousness, the, the perfection of my own son, Jesus. Your sin is no more. Praise God for that. Let's go back to joy for a second. Can we do that? That ought to bring you joy. Friends, this is the gospel. And that, having received his grace, having received his love and his kindness, that he would serve us in that way to lay down his own life. As we walk with him and immerse ourselves in his word, he calls us to serve one another, to lay our lives down for one another, for our neighbors, in and through his church. 
Consider the gifts that God has given you. I don't know what all they are. You, you know better than me. It may be that the gifts that God has given you is resources. Maybe you don't have many natural talents, but you can help fund other people who do. Use them for God's glory. Use them for his service. Maybe you don't have a dime in the bank, but God's given you a gift. He's given you an ability, some way that you can serve in the church or in your community. Use your gift to serve this God who loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. If you're reading, studying, hearing the word of God, one of the effects it's going to have on you is you'll be moved to serve. Can I plug something real quick? This is just perfect timing that this is the day we're giving these out. Every year we do these um, church ministry volunteer surveys. The nominating committee meets over the summer to look at who's going to serve and what positions over the next church year. And guess what? The day I'm preaching this sermon just so happened to be the same day we're putting the surveys out. I'll just leave that up to the providence of God because I'm not that coordinated. But I'm serious. Take one of these home. Guess what? I don't want you to fill it out today. I want you to take it home and tuck it in your Bible. And when you spend time with the Lord, I want you to pray and say, Lord, where do you want me to serve? Would you show me what you want me to do? in the church next year? That's just one practical way. I don't know what God's leading you to do. You, that's between you and Him. But friends, wherever you are, if you've been born again, God's called you to serve. Commit yourself to the membership of a local church and get plugged in and get to work. Not for the church's sake, but for God's sake. For the sake of Jesus' name. And his glory in all the earth, that others may hear the good news about him and be born again. And through that, he'll give you joy and give you opportunities to take what he's teaching you and pass it along to other people. These are just some of the effects of God's word on his people. In whatever way he's leading you, I hope that you'll submit to him. In fact, right now, let's just go ahead and bow our heads and we'll, we'll spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Bow your heads and, and close your eyes and... Search your own heart. And if there's something that the Lord has brought to your attention this morning, He's brought it to your mind. Something you need to do. Tell Him right now, okay, I'll do it. You help me, but I'll do it. Or maybe you've realized that you're not really led to have joy and serve and all these things and to teach. Because you're not really spending all that much time in His Word. So right now what you need to do is commit to time spent with the Lord in His Word and in prayer every single day. You also may be one who has not been born again. This means nothing to you because you're not a Christian. But you realize that you are a sinner and that you need to be saved. That you need your sins forgiven. God's command to you is to repent. To turn away from your sin. And to believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. And rose from the dead. And he'll give you his free gift of forgiveness and life. Whatever it is that the Lord is leading you to do right now. Deal with it. Between you and him alone. As I pray.
Our Father, we praise you for your word and for the effects that it has on us, your people. I pray that you would move us to worship, to give you the honor that you're due, to take what you're teaching us and to teach others also. Lord, produce your joy in us. That even though we may have seasons of sorrow, we can say like Paul that we're always rejoicing. And Lord, move us to whatever place of service you have for us. Lord, I pray for any among us who have not been born again. That your spirit would convict their hearts, show them their need. And draw them to the Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.